my body couldn't take it anymore. The signs were there that something was wrong, very wrong. I was exhausted. My mood was swinging between irritation and anger. I was drinking gallons of water, but still, I was dying of thirst. My craving for sweets had become insatiable. Me, who'd never had a sweet tooth before? How was that even possible? It was as if I needed every bit of energy to keep going. I had lost 20% of my weight in a matter of days. My vitality was abandoning me by the hours now. It all happened so fast, yet so gradually. I didn't realize something was wrong until the very last moment. Sitting in the living room, I was shaking. I was 14 years old, and after two weeks of this ride down Deterioration Alley, on a Tuesday evening in spring of 2008, I passed out. I could feel the early sun rays on my sheets. The birds were singing. Damn, I love spring. It felt nice. Lucky that nightmare was over. There were some familiar voices in the room. I slowly opened my eyes, and it took them a while to accommodate to the light bouncing from every corner of this white room. My family was there with two doctors in long scrubs. I was tangled in tubes that were falling from a pouch above my head and finishing right into my forearms. As I started to wake up, the doctors came to talk to me. That was it. I had type 1 diabetes. I only remember asking myself, now what? What will my life look like from now on? I had all these dreams of a future full of adventures and now I would have to give up on it? Would I? Hi everyone and welcome to Life on the Edge. We are Estelle and Rami and we're filmmakers. In this podcast, we explore what it means to live a life with no boundaries. As we go on with our journey documenting original stories around the world, we share with you the insights and wisdom of the people extending the limits of what possible means. In today's episode, Estelle and I will talk about what it's like to have an active life and go on an adventures with a condition such as type 1 diabetes. We will first explain what it is and how it affects the everyday life of people who have it. So even if you're not familiar with the condition, but are still curious, please stay. We'll tell you everything you need to know before the crunchy part. Then we'll get to the main part of this podcast. Yeah, that's the crunchy part I mentioned before. Oh, okay. We'll tell you how we monitor Rami's health in the context of our rather crazy lifestyle. We love to go on adventures, and by this we mean physically demanding trips off the beaten path that are full of uncertainty. We'll talk about tools, habits, tips, and give you examples of everything you should not do with anecdotes of our previous adventures in China, Australia, or the US, where things got very stressful pretty quickly. Finally, we'll get a little more personal and tell you about our life together, so you can get a glimpse of our dynamics as a couple. Rami. Stop giving them false expectations. What are you talking about? All I'm saying is that we'll tell you from our experience how you can involve your partner and get their support in monitoring your health. 
We believe it's super important if you are diabetic to not keep it to yourself. After all, if you are in a long-term relationship, diabetes will affect your partner's life too. And if you are the partner, well, it is more constructive to be curious about it and try to understand it as much as possible. We try to make this podcast as entertaining and informative as we can. And this episode is about a pretty personal topic. We didn't think we'd share it this soon, but here it is. We hope that you will enjoy it. If you are diabetic yourself, we hope that it will be uplifting to be reminded that you are not alone and that you'll find some ideas to apply to your own life. If you're not yet familiar with this, we hope that you will enjoy learning what living with diabetes means. It's cool for your general knowledge and it will come in handy if ever you meet someone who has it. And finally, if you've recently been diagnosed, well, we want this to be a kind reminder that everything will be fine and even your wildest dreams are still within your reach. As long as you manage it well, nothing can stop you from living the life that you aspire to live. We're making today the podcast I would have loved to listen to when I was 14 and when my only question was, will I be able to? Enjoy the show. Oh, and by the way, this is by no means an expert medical opinion or advice. It is just and only our personal experience. All right, so let's start with what diabetes is and how it affects a person's daily life. So our bodies, diabetic or not, need energy to function. And we get that energy from food, essentially from carbs. When you eat carbs, your digestive system breaks them down into smaller pieces. When the pieces are small enough and don't need to be broken down any further, such as glucose, for example, they enter your bloodstream to be delivered to the cells that need energy throughout your body. But once glucose is in your blood, how can energy-hungry cells fetch it? In a non-diabetic person, the pancreas produces a hormone called insulin, which acts like a carrier for glucose, and it will carry it from your blood to the cells. Now, a diabetic person is someone whose pancreas is damaged and cannot produce insulin or enough of it. And that's what happened to you, right? Exactly. When I got diagnosed with diabetes, I had to stay at the hospital for three weeks. Not because I was under extensive treatment, but because I had to learn how to take over the job of my pancreas, which wasn't working anymore. And believe me, that's when you understand how complex and smart your body actually is. Please appreciate it. The day after I woke up, a nurse came to me to explain what diabetes was and how it affected my health. She was undoubtedly used to working with kids and had a very simple and visual way of explaining it. She said, Imagine that glucose molecules are logs of firewood and your body cells are tiny houses that need woods to make fire. Then insulin would be tiny keys that open the doors to the cells so the firewood can be delivered. My pancreas was permanently damaged and it could not produce those keys anymore, which meant that the cells, aka the tiny houses in my body, could not receive firewood anymore. And that meant two things. The first issue was that the wood or the glucose was stacking up in my blood vessels, which could cause damage to these. And the second one was that the houses were having an energy shortage. When this was happening, the cells needed to find energy elsewhere to stay alive. That's when my body would start by burning fat. And when there was not enough fat left, it would burn through the muscles. And eventually, it would start dissolving the bones in the most extreme cases. 
This explained my escalating symptoms in the two earlier weeks. Loss of weight, hunger, thirst, and so on. Now you often hear about two types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. They both manifest with a similar set of symptoms, but they are not the same. In type 2 diabetes, the pancreas essentially gets exhausted because of a person's lifestyle and age, and it usually results in a partial damage to the organ. It also sometimes comes with insulin resistance, but that's another topic. Here is a very simplified way of looking at it. When you grow older and you have an unhealthy lifestyle, namely, if you eat too many sweets or highly processed carbs, you don't have a proper and regular physical activity, you smoke, live in a stressful environment and so on, you really put an excessive strain on your pancreas, which sometimes just cannot handle that much pressure and will start to degrade. It's like an overworked employee. The pancreas will usually still work to some extent, but slower and less efficiently. And the treatment will essentially consist of helping it do its job. This represents the majority of diabetes cases. Type 1 diabetes, however, is an autoimmune disease and represents only about 10% of the cases. It's hard to know why, but at some point, the immune system gets crazy and confused and attacks a specific part of the pancreas where it progressively destroys what's called beta cells, which are responsible for insulin production. After a year or two of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, the beta cells are usually all destroyed and the body is unable to produce them again. So a person with type 1 diabetes will basically have to manually take on the job of insulin delivery to the body. It's not about helping the pancreas anymore. It's about replacing it in this very specific task, regulating the amount of glucose that's in your blood. Now, if you're going to regulate something, you need to monitor it first. People with diabetes, type 1 or 2, monitor themselves on a regular basis to make sure the glucose levels in their blood are healthy, not too high, not too low. To do this, they use a glucometer, which is a little machine in which you put a blood sample, usually a drop from the finger. The glucometer will analyze the blood and tell you how much glucose is swimming in there. Of course, the more you do it, the better it is. Doctors used to recommend a minimum of six checks a day, which honestly is ridiculously low if you want to do this right. But that means that at least six times a day, you're supposed to disinfect your hands, prick your finger, take some blood out, put it in the machine, wash the blood off of your finger, and there you have it. How convenient. Yeah, and that's just the monitoring part. Then you need to regulate. Remember, the way your body naturally regulates the levels of glucose in your blood is by producing and releasing insulin. Since it's not doing it anymore, you need to take insulin from an external source. People with type 1 diabetes need to take two types of insulin. The first is a daily shot that's called the slow-acting insulin because its effects last for about 24 hours, well, until the next shot. The second is an insulin that we need to take with every meal. Think about it, when we eat, there will obviously be a spike in glucose entering the body. Imagine a big pizza. With mushrooms. With mushrooms, yeah, with mushrooms. Uh, and onions too. And onions. Hey, can we get back to the podcast? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The base insulin can't make up for that alone, so we need to take a shot of what's called fast-acting insulin. To be able to calculate how much of it he needs to take, Rami needs to know two things. 
the amount of carbs in the given meal and the amount of glucose in his blood at the time of the meal. If there's a lot of carbs in the meal and his glucose level is too high, he'll have to take a lot of insulin to get down to a healthy level. If, on the contrary, his level is too low at the time of the meal, he will need to take a little less insulin so his glucose level goes back up to a healthy place. So yeah, he takes insulin shots as many times as he has meals throughout the day. Plus one. I'm glad the needles are so small. Now, we're almost done explaining what diabetes is, and we just need to talk about one more thing before we get to the main part of this episode. The crunchy part, Estelle. Yeah, the crunchy part. Lucky that I'm here to make people want to stick around. Sorry. So, before we get to the crunchy part, we need to answer a question that you might be asking yourself right now. What happens if you do not regulate the glucose levels in your blood? What happens when you get out of the healthy range? There are basically two ways that you can get out of range. You can be either above or below the range. If too much glucose stacks up in your blood, you are in a state called hyperglycemia. This is when your blood gets saturated with glucose and your cells don't have access to energy because you didn't take enough insulin. If you get high above the range, you end up like me at 14, in the hospital. Now, if you spend too much time of your life slightly above the range, you may not feel it on the spot. But in the long run, this can cause complications because it causes damage to your capillary vessels, leading to loss of sight, heart attacks, limbs amputations, and other nasty consequences. So, that was above the range. Now, if you go below a certain level, you are in a state called hypoglycemia, which means that your blood is running low in glucose. And here's the catch. Your brain is a huge fan of glucose and cannot function without it. Now, one of the reasons why you can survive for a few days without insulin is because most of your brain cells don't need insulin to catch glucose. As long as there's glucose in your blood, they will help themselves and be just fine. This is true when you are in the healthy range and above it. But if you're below the range, in this state called hypoglycemia, your brain cells start running low on sugar. And when your brain doesn't have what it needs to function, you don't have a lot of room for error. It can quickly lead to blurred vision, fatigue, shakiness, a bit like Superman on kryptonite. And if you don't act fast enough, which means minutes or hours, depending on the situation, hypoglycemia in a diabetic person can lead to hypoglycemic coma, and you don't want to be there. In diabetic people, hypoglycemia can happen very easily. The main causes are usually intensive or prolonged physical activity, or taking too much insulin with a meal, which can happen if you did not estimate correctly the amount of carbs it contained. Luckily, hypoglycemia is also pretty easy to make up for as you simply need to ingest a carb-rich snack, or compensation, as they call it in the medical sphere. Now, don't be silly, okay? Never use a Diet Coke as a compensation, because artificial sweeteners won't work. You need a glucose intake. So yeah, it's really about finding balance and monitoring your state throughout each day with the tools that you have. I had so many people ask me, oh, so you're diabetic. Do you have too much sugar or not enough? And I'm like, um, well, it depends. Now with all of this, it gets pretty clear that managing type 1 diabetes correctly comes with a lot of constraints. 
So let's talk about how we manage all of this with our lifestyle. As some of you may know, Rami and I love to go on adventures and we often take part in projects abroad. This, of course, requires a lot of preparation on its own, but for us, there's this extra layer of complexity that we need to think about. Now, to start this chapter, we'd like to take you back in time and all the way across the globe to the western coast of Australia. Rami and I were on a three-week road trip. The western coast is pretty wild and not very populated, so after a full week on the road, we were quite far away from any town or city. For the first time in our lives, we'd seen the warning signs reminding people to have extra gallons of water and fuel backups if they could, because of the lack of gas stations in the area. We were so far from any civilization that our daily showers had turned into sunset baths in the ocean. Until then, the whole trip had gone very smoothly and without a single hiccup. We always had glucose compensations with us and Rami could react quickly if he was in hypoglycemia. As usual, when we travel to a different time zone, he has put an alarm on his phone to make sure he took the slow-acting insulin on regular intervals. And we had our little system for storing the insulin. Insulin starts degrading above 40 degrees Celsius and it gets destroyed below zero which is about 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a pretty wide range, so there is flexibility, but it's always good to keep this in mind. So we had a little fridge in the camper where we could store the insulin. We always keep it in the door of the fridge when we travel to make sure it doesn't freeze in the back if the fridge is badly adjusted. When we were leaving the van to go on long hikes, we kept the insulin in insulated pouches in our bags to make sure it didn't go warm. And also, we had, as usual, a special pouch in which we were keeping all the used needles to bring them back home and throw them in the special yellow container from the pharmacy that is meant for this. If you're diabetic, you know what I'm talking about. Never throw needles in regular garbage. Those things are an ecological disaster and they need to be treated separately. Well, in short, our little system was working well, but one morning, as we were getting ready to move on, we did not see the glucometer in the sheets. It is about the size of a walkie-talkie. And as we pulled the sheets to put them away, the glucometer fell behind the bed and inside the structure of the vehicle. We couldn't reach it anymore. We were deep inside of the bush on a dirt road miles away from any gas station, let alone a pharmacy. We still had two weeks to go and Rami couldn't check his glucose levels anymore. So he would need to blindly estimate the amount of insulin he was taking. A few days later, our road trip led us by total chance to a wildlife sanctuary. They were rescuing horses, birds, emus, snakes, dingoes, kangaroos, you name it. There was even a peacock flying in and out. The place was magical and we asked if we could stay for the rest of our trip to help on the farm. There was never a dull moment. Orphaned kangaroos were brought in by good Samaritans and we had to bottle feed them. We had to feed the dingoes with the dog always, as she was the only one who had authority over the pack. We had to check the fences around the property, a job that usually lasted well over two hours and implied being followed around by a kangaroo craving for scratches. 
The fence check also usually ended up in finding one or two beautiful turquoise emu eggs, which at that time of the year were not fertilized. When this happened, we knew we'd have an omelette for dinner and one single egg could easily feed the whole family. It was the outdoors life at its best. Now, you're probably wondering where I want to go with this. I'm not going nuts because of the quarantine and I know you don't give a damn about our emu omelette. But here's the point. For the whole time that we were there, until we came back to Switzerland, I had no way of checking my glucose levels and my insulin intake relied mostly on careful guessing. But when I came back home and went on my general checkup, my doctor tested my glucose levels of the previous three months, as she usually does. And the results were great. What does that mean? Moving, my friend, is the best remedy of all. Even if I'm diabetic? Especially if you're diabetic. No, for everyone actually. But if you're diabetic, the question is not whether it's safe to have a physical activity or not. I would rather say it's a necessity. Sport and movement is necessary for everyone, of course, but as a diabetic, you will feel the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy lifestyle 10 times more. Having a healthy dose of physical activity helps me regulate my glucose levels for less insulin intake overall. When we're not running around in the bush or desert, I have my routine and hit the gym daily. Most of the time, it's a weightlifting session, but I also try to squeeze in some cardio or muscular endurance classes, just for the sake of changing. Now, starting out with sports can be tricky when you're diabetic. I know this as I've been there too, and it took me a while to create a healthy set of habits for myself. A few years after I was diagnosed, I decided to start weightlifting. I have two brothers that are older than me. They've always been my role models, and at the time, both were going really hard with bodybuilding. They looked like something between a model and a mountain. And when they decided to hit an all-you-can-eat buffet with their bodybuilder friends, the restaurant usually ran out of stock before they were full. Yes, it happened for real. So yeah, I started training with them and as for all the rest, they were pushing me far beyond my limits. I started putting muscle on very fast, but something made this whole thing very unsustainable and even dangerous for my health. Nightly hypoglycemia. I started to have them every single night and some nights several times. And the harder I was pushing at the gym, the harder the hypoglycemia was hitting me at night. I would wake up critically low, completely disoriented and my vision completely blurred. Sweat was running down my back and cheeks and I was shaking so much that I could barely walk straight. When I was in that state, I was in survival mode. There could have been an elephant in my living room, I wouldn't have noticed it. My brain was on the search for glucose. Those hypoglycemia were exhausting. I'd wake up more tired than I went to bed with a massive headache and I had to face it. On the long run, this shit was dangerous for my brain. I talked about it with my doctor, and together, we made a few changes to my routine that turned my life upside down. The first thing I did was to reduce a tiny bit the amount of slow-acting insulin I was taking, and more importantly, I started taking it in the morning, rather than in the evening. 
The peak, when this insulin has the strongest effect, is a few hours after the injection. So when I was taking it in the evening, this insulin was hitting my system the hardest while I was sleeping. By taking it in the morning, it's meant two things. First, I had my breakfast before and second, if ever my glucose level was peaking down, I could take a compensation much sooner than if I was sleeping. The second change I made was to stop hitting the gym too late in the evening. Today I tried to get my training sessions anywhere between the late morning and mid-afternoon. This means I still have a few meals and snacks before going to bed and mostly, I'm still awake in the few hours after the training, which is when my glucose level is most likely to have a dip. I know, most people have no choice but to sit in an office for countless hours and don't have the luxury of deciding how they organize their schedule. But if you can squeeze some sports during your lunch break or in the morning before going to work, you should really consider it as it is absolutely life-changing. This was all confirmed a few years ago when my doctor introduced me to a new way of monitoring my glucose levels. A CGM, which stands for Continuous Glucose Monitoring Device. It came out right after we were in Australia and given the glucometer problem we had, I was happy to try anything new. And this one was life-changing. Oh, you're still here? Yeah, I can't believe it either. A CGM is a wearable sensor that analyzes your blood on regular intervals. Rami uses the Freestyle Libre, which is a chip the size of a coin that actually looks badass and stays on your arm for up to 14 days. Rami simply needs to scan it with his smartphone to get the information he needs. <coughs> I look badass? No, the chip. A tiny filament that sticks out of the chip is introduced beneath the upper layers of the skin and it monitors the glucose levels and sends them directly to Rami's phone as curves and charts. He used to have to sting his finger and get a drop of blood out every time and of course you can't do this 20 times a day. It's also great for visualizing your health, so to say, and noticing patterns. Lately, I started to compare the periods where I was regular in the gym with the times where I was skipping sessions. The diagrams showed it all. The curves were so much flatter and almost consistently within the range whenever I was exercising. For a non-diabetic person, it's harder to realize that the sedentary lifestyle, well, really fucks you up. In my case, I see it on a graph, literally. And the effect is immediate. When I do sports, my overall health management improves. I go from being 30 to 40% of the time in target, to being there 70 to 90% of the time. Physical activity just regulates everything and being able to visualize the evolution of your glucose levels is incredibly empowering. We know some people who did not like it, so I guess it all comes down to personal preferences. But what's for sure, monitoring, and especially monitoring often, is key to getting it right. And while it is always true, this took a whole new meaning when Rami's trip to San Francisco took a violent and unexpected turn. This trip was absolutely not meant to be as hectic as it turned out to be. It was an entrepreneurial camp organized for students from our region. 10 of us got selected to spend a week in the Silicon Valley and be immersed in the crazy and buzzing ecosystem through visits, workshops, and many other activities. 
It was around 7 p.m. and we were about to close the first day of workshops with a nice dinner out. Since we couldn't agree on what to eat, the group split for the evening and a friend and I were now strolling down the streets of San Francisco looking for a sushi place. As we were reaching a junction, we stopped and talked about going back to a place that looked good a few blocks earlier. But out of nowhere, I looked up, but it was too late. The Chevrolet flew over on the walkway and hit me full force before crashing into the wall right behind me. Luckily, the impact had propelled me on the side, flipping me around in mid-air and knocking my face against the wall before I crashed back down on the concrete walkway. People started gathering around me. My friend, he was doing fine. An ambulance arrived. I didn't lose consciousness at any moment and by the time the emergency crew arrived, I was already joking around. It was a miracle. If I had stepped a few inches on the side, I would have ended up crushed between the brick wall and what was left of the car. It would have been ugly. The driver was uninjured. He actually ran away. I was not feeling that bad. A little knocked out with a bump on my forehead, the size that you only see in Tom and Jerry, and the emergency doctor had cut through my favorite jeans. It took me a while, but <laughs> I forgave him could have been so much worse. They put me on a stretcher, loaded me in the ambulance and rushed me to the hospital. I was taken in immediately and the doctor came out with a very reassuring diagnosis. The only injury I had, apart from the cartoon-like bump on my head, was around my ankle. They didn't know if it was broken yet and I needed to wait there for further exams. While waiting, I started to be thirsty. Normal, you may think, but when I get thirsty, the first thing I think about is hyperglycemia. I asked the nurse if she could bring me my belongings. When she came back, I checked my glucose levels. And it was through the roof. No surprise I was feeling nauseous. Glucose levels are known to spike when you go through a stressful situation, but now I really had to take some insulin. To my surprise, the nurses and doctors wouldn't let me take insulin for security reasons. It's true, I didn't have my medical certificate with me, but why would I pretend being diabetic? You guys took prison break way too seriously. They finally agreed to give me some insulin, and looking back, it was really nice of them as giving me insulin without seeing my certificate was a risk they were taking. The exams showed that my ankle was not even broken, and they just gave me a brace and crutches to walk. That same night, I was out of the hospital and relieved to get back in the game. I only got a few hours of sleep, but I didn't want to miss a single activity. I was only there for a week after all. As I was checking my glucose the following days, the levels were consistently way above the norm. I was taking almost double the insulin I usually would have with every meal, and still, I was high. <laughs> Just not in a nice way. This lasted for the whole week and was clearly the sign that something was wrong with me. 
My uncle was hurting pretty badly and it was getting more swollen every day. At the end of the camp, when I got back to Switzerland, I went straight to the hospital to check. That was it. My uncle was indeed broken. Still, that was a detail compared to what might have been. But on that trip I learned two things. First, knowing and monitoring your body is important and I have the tools to monitor it much more precisely than someone who's not diabetic. That doesn't make me happy and thankful to be diabetic, but it does remind me of how lucky I am to have access to those tools. Hence, it reminds me to use them more. And second, since that day, I always keep a copy of my medical certificate on my phone. I used to take a printed copy of my certificate in my luggage. But what do you do in a situation like this where you can't get back to your room? Or if your luggage gets stolen? I mean, having your certificate with you can always come in handy. Consider it an extension of your ID card. Now, there's another thing that comes to my mind with this story, and it is what would have happened if you had passed out in the accident and couldn't tell them you're diabetic? That's actually a good question. Yeah, I know. Since you're wearing a sensor, doctors would probably notice it, but still, they might not see it right away as it is on the back of your arm. Most of the time, it's a good idea to have a notice in your wallet. Rami also updated his health profile on his phone with all the information. It's the medical card on the phone that you can open without entering the PIN. If you want to take it a step further, you can also get a medical bracelet, which is also a commonly accepted way of displaying medical warnings. Great, now I'll have to get the bracelet. Never mind. Oh yeah, one last thing. Never look for a sushi place in San Francisco. Like, honestly, do you really need that? Think again, you have so many other options. Now, generally speaking, when you travel, it's really about thinking in survival mode and not relying on anything or anyone in the country you're going to. I know it sounds pretty harsh, but really, make sure you have everything you need with you all the time. The first thing that we usually pack is, well, the insulin. While you can safely put some of it in your main luggage, make sure you always keep enough of it with you in the cabin. In case your checked luggage gets lost, you should be able to last for several days without it. Then of course, you need to pack needles and a glucometer, or whatever monitoring device you're using. We also keep a copy of the medical certificate on our phones, as well as a printed version for security at the airport, even though we never had to show it, to be honest. Also, when packing our first aid kit, we make sure we always take anti-vomiting drugs as well. Now, we usually like to tell us stories with comprehensive descriptions so that you can visualize the places and get immersed in our story. Well, we won't do it here. But in short, as a diabetic, if you travel to a remote or simply sketchy place and end up getting food poisoning, which happened to us more than once, you need to get back in control of your body to prevent hypoglycemia. If you ate something that made you sick, of course, let your body throw it up first. But once it's done, you need to be able to swallow some sugar again if ever your glucose levels start peaking down and sometimes medication is necessary to get your body to accept it. Finally, and most importantly, make sure you have enough sugar supplies and keep them in a place where they are easy to access. Now, it might sound like we get it right all the time, and we wish we did, but that's just not true. It happens to forget one thing or another, but most of the time it's nothing very important. Except for that one time when we got it very, very wrong. 
It was in the beginning of 2020. We had to go to Shenzhen, and saying that we were excited about this trip would be an understatement. We were going there for a very important meeting. There will be a podcast about it later this year, but shh. Anyways, let's get back to us at the airport. Our luggage is checked in, and we just went through security. As usual, the only thing that got security's special attention was not the weird syringes and needles, but our camera bag. Now we're done with it and totally ready to go for a drink while waiting for our plane. As we're looking for a cool cafe to sit, Estelle goes like... Shit, we forgot the soldering iron. Because yes, we'd need to craft some things once in Shenzhen. Great, now we would need to find one on spot. But a few minutes later, it turned out the soldering iron was not the only thing we had forgotten to pack. As we're sipping on our drinks, I take out the black pouch I usually keep my insulin in. And it turns out, it is not the insulin pouch. I lay my bag on the seat and start looking through it. Still, no insulin. In the rush of leaving for the airport, I mixed up the two pouches laying on my desk. They looked similar. One contained my insulin supply for the whole stay, and the other one, some silly microphones we didn't even need for that trip. So here I am holding a pouch with a microphone, realizing that I have absolutely no insulin with me. I'm not too worried yet because Estelle usually has a backup, which should be sufficient for our short stay. So I ask her, but her face turns livid. She packed it in her suitcase and not the cabin luggage. So here is the first lesson we learned on that trip. Most airport pharmacies are not allowed to store and sell insulin because of hygienic reasons. They don't have storing and supply conditions that are strict enough to ensure that the quality of the insulin is not altered. So keep this in mind. The chance that you will find insulin in an airport is very thin, even at the emergency center. So now it's obvious. I won't be able to take any insulin until we get our luggage back. This means no meals on the plane. By the way, the so-called diabetic meals that are available on planes should be called type 2 diabetic meals. As a type 1 diabetic, I can have any meal that I want as long as I take my insulin. And I must take my insulin. If I don't have it, which is absolutely never supposed to happen, even a diabetic meal as they call it will contain too many carbs for me. 14 hours later, after the most boring flights I've known, we touch down and finally get to the luggage belt. At that point, I'm feeling dizzy and nauseous, but super relieved at the side of Estelle's suitcase waiting for us in the merry-go-round. I fetch it as it strolls next to us, open it up, find a pouch, and then... Bittersweet realization. I had just enough long-lasting insulin for about three days. And as for the fast-acting one, the amount that was left would only help me get back to a healthy state and keep going for the rest of the day. Without eating, of course. It was pretty obvious that what we would be doing for the rest of the day was looking for insulin. We checked on some forums and expats were saying that they were getting their insulin pretty easily in pharmacies. And they were even mentioning the average price they were paying, so we would know if ever we were getting scammed. Yeah, I know, that's a very stupid stereotype, but we did think about it. Anyways, so we arrive in Shenzhen, drop our bags at the Airbnb and start roaming the city, looking for insulin. Pharmacy after pharmacy, nobody has it. At that point, we start to be tense. What if we don't find it? 
In China, almost nobody speaks English. You don't have access to Google Maps unless you use a VPN and still, it's limited. And on top of that, everything is written in Mandarin. People were very kind though. They tried to help the best way they could, by using a live translator to point us in the right direction. At least, it was an original way to discover Shenzhen by night. It was the first time we were in the city, by the way. We keep going. We enter a little pharmacy that doesn't look like a pharmacy at all. I show my insulin pens to the women there, like I did already 10 times before, even though I was pretty sure the answer would be no different than the ones I already got. She takes her phone out and uses a photo translator app. She snaps a picture of my pen and gets a live translation of what's written on it. Then she leaves for a few minutes. She comes back to us and there it is. In her hand, a full base insulin from the brand I used to get is just waiting for me. I'm like, my god, yes, my precious, for a moment I become Gollum, you know? Nobody will take this away from me. It was more expensive than in Switzerland, which is sad when you think about it. For the price of one pen in China, I could get four of these at home and salaries are not the same. I thought it should be the other way around, you know? Especially knowing how vital this thing is if you need it. Now, the bittersweet news was that they did not have the fast-acting insulin. And all were saying the same thing. You can only find it in clinics. So we thought, okay, let's not insist. If we are sure to find it at the clinic, then let's go to the clinic. Next thing you know, we're in a cab headed for the Shenzhen hospital. So, we get to the hospital and go to the emergency department, which is where they sell the insulin. The woman there tells us, Ah, oh, no, sorry, come back tomorrow, the storage room is closed now. I'm sorry, what? What do you mean it's closed? We insist, but she doesn't give in. At that point, we're not even sure we'll find some tomorrow. And just the idea of having to come back and go through Chinese administration was daunting, but, well, what could we do? So we leave. We almost give up and I tell the others, look guys, let's go grab something to eat for you. I'll have a soup or something and we'll come back early tomorrow and if we're lucky, we'll be done with it then. And as we turn the corner of the hospital, we see a little pharmacy right at the next block. It is still open and right on our way, so we think, let's have a look. Rami's not really thrilled about it. He wants to spare us the hassle of going into a 20th pharmacy. So he jogs there, expecting to come right back, empty hands, as we walk by the pharmacy so we can keep on walking. He gets there and, from the other side of the street, I can see him stop by a fridge right in the entrance. He opens the fridge, grabs a small rectangular box, turns to us and screams. There it is. They have it. The pressure instantly gets released. We go straight to the counter, pay for it, and we leave. Now we're okay. Now we're back to normal. We never used to take this lightly. It was the first time that this happened to us, and after this episode, we realized that even though we live in a global economy where we suppose that we can find any product anywhere on the planet, it's really not the case for certain things, especially for medication, no matter how mainstream, so to speak, they are. And apparently, we were lucky to be in China because in the US, for example, 
we would have needed to see a doctor and get a medical certificate there which would have taken more time and would have been more costly. If there are two things you need to remember, it's this. Always have enough of what you need so you don't rely on external supplies and check your glucose levels often. It's never too much. Especially when you travel, you often go from a sedentary lifestyle to moving much more and as a diabetic, your physical activity has a lot of impact on all the rest and you need to take any change into account. A prolonged milled activity generally has the effect of lowering your needs in insulin and hence putting you at risk of being regularly in hypoglycemia if you don't adapt the amount you're injecting. Checking the glucose levels regularly is the only way of getting it right. Information for us is life or death. You don't think you're going a little bit overboard here? No. Yes. But now that you're talking about going overboard, let's talk about one more thing. The glucagon. In order to be well prepared when you travel or do sports, you need to make sure you always, and I said always, have easy access to glucose. If you're in hypoglycemia, cereal bars, bananas, juice, plain sugar, anything rich in carbs will help. Now sometimes, hypoglycemia kicks in really quickly, and it can happen that sometimes you don't have access to carbs right away. If the situation degrades quickly and you pass out before you were able to get a snack, yeah, I know, this sounds ridiculous, but my life literally sometimes depends on snacks. So you've passed out, and now you're in what's called a hypoglycemic coma. Well, the glucagon is a one-shot mixture that I am supposed to have with me at home or when traveling, and if I ever pass out due to hypoglycemia, this shot will help me wake up by liberating the last bits of glucose stored in my liver. As soon as I wake up, I'll need to have a carbs intake. Now, I know it's obvious, but I will never be the one using the glucagon shot, since using it implies that I passed out. So, if you're off on a crazy adventure or expedition, don't forget to let people know where your glucagon is and how and when you'll need them to help. A hypoglycemic coma is unlikely to happen if you are a little careful, but it still can happen, and you don't want to let the security aside. Alright, I think we're done with this part. We still have some tips and advice coming, but it's mostly related to general management of diabetes. No, we didn't talk about the late-night cardio yet. We're not talking about the late-night cardio here. Well, I think we're good then. Now let's talk about us. Yeah, let's talk about us. So, when you have type 1 diabetes, it's totally embedded in many aspects of your life. You might feel like you're alone, but honestly, type 1 diabetes impacts more people than just the person who has it. Usually, it starts with the parents, as most cases are diagnosed in childhood. It starts with the parents, but also teachers and all adults responsible for you, such as parents of your close friends or sport trainers, for example. Now, things can be tricky for all of them. I think it is essential to let your kid be as independent as possible the sooner regarding this condition, and that starts, unintuitively, by empowering all the adults caring for the kid. That's right. In my case, for example, my parents and the nurses really let me do my thing and were just checking up on me from time to time to make sure I was doing it well. Now, what was super important was that almost every adult that was responsible for me got all the information and instructions on how to help me in case of an emergency. The nurses came to school for a private meeting with all of my teachers to give them a crash course. When I changed the school after a few years, the nurses came back to the new school and did the same. 
The great thing about it was that for me, it meant I could do whatever the other kids were doing. As soon as the people around me knew how to help me if needed, they felt much more comfortable in letting me live a normal life because they knew that whatever happened, they could handle it. And here's just a quick word to all the parents out there. The best thing you can do is really to make sure your kid gets to do it all. Don't be overprotective, just be organized and smart about it. If your child wants to play football, for instance, talk to the trainer, provide the trainer with doses of sugar or juices if ever your kid needs them. There are also sports camps specifically meant for diabetic kids, where the people taking care of them are trained to spot any problem and to handle those situations. Now, when you grow older, you start being completely independent regarding this. But even then, you might start a relationship. And if you're thinking long term, then your condition has as much impact on you as it has on your partner. So it's important that they are involved. It obviously depends on personal preferences. But I, for example, like to go with Rami when he's got medical checkups. I always end up having a question and it's nice to be able to ask the doctor right away. She also usually gives us new information every time. Could be regarding new monitoring solutions or even tips regarding an upcoming trip that we have. And two brains remember better than one. Altogether, when you're involved in it, you can adapt much better to the lifestyle and even work together on a new and better lifestyle. We usually analyze his graphs together and when we spot problematic patterns, we think together about a solution. I usually keep an insulin backup in my purse when we go out, so if Rami forgot his, well, we still have it. And if ever he's in hypoglycemia at night, I'm also very good at sleeping like a baby while he's crawling into the kitchen fighting to survive. Jokes aside, it's not about babying the other person. I think that's the worst thing you can do, but rather working together to design the best possible lifestyle and create the right conditions to support the person's well-being. In the end, each person's health will affect both lives. To end this episode, I'd like to tell you one more thing. If you have a condition such as type 1 diabetes, remember, it won't go away. Just because you pretend it doesn't exist will not make it disappear. Nobody will fix this. I know that when we're young, we believe we're invincible. We don't picture the consequences that our actions today can have on our future. From the day I was diagnosed until today, I went from periods of fully acknowledging my situation because I accepted it as a challenge, to periods of complete denial because I was getting tired of all that monitoring. And the threat of having side effects 30 years later was just too vague to motivate me. I'd forget to take my shots or take a randomly defined standard dose with every meal just because I was lazy to estimate what amount I really needed. I'd keep going until I ended up rushed to emergency care and locked in bed with salty perfusions in my arms to drain the excess of glucose, just like when I was 14. After that, I tried to do things well again, but the bad habits never took long to kick back in. The key to changing this for good was really my state of mind. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself and with the doctors too. You know, someone once told me, there are two people in your life you should always tell the truth to. Your lawyer and your doctor. What are you doing? Nothing. Just taking notes and stuff. 
So I said, there are three people in your life you should always tell the truth to. Your girlfriend, your lawyer, and your doctor. Believe me, I've been there. Your test comes out ugly and you know it's because you've been careless. Your doctor is waiting for an explanation and that's totally embarrassing. But remember, your doctor knows when you're bluffing and all you're doing is wasting your time and theirs. They are here to help, but they can only help as much as you let them. In the end, it's up to you to rock the boat. Having type 1 diabetes only has to mean one thing. You'll have to take care of your body a little more than everybody else. But hey, isn't it a good thing to take care of your body? It doesn't have to limit you in any way. If you take the responsibility, you get to a state of control of your health, of your mental. You get discipline. You get to be fully aware of your body and you end up making better decisions than the average person. And this translates to any part of your life. You know, I'd regret it so much if at 50 or 60 I realized that I lost 5 or 10 years of quality life just because I was lazy at 20. Now, I'm fully aware that being a millennial living in Switzerland, I could hardly wish for better conditions to live with this. Everything from the technology to the financial and medical support was absolutely amazing from the start. Even when I started to clearly neglect my health, nurses and doctors kept on checking on me, trying to push me to do better and reminding me that they were here for me at any time. Why did they even care? I still don't know today, but I'm forever grateful for all the support and care that I got. In the end, it's really about doing the most with what we have. It is easy to say, I know, but hey, it's so true. No matter where you live or what you have access to, don't let yourself be the limiting factor. Be responsible. Acknowledge it fully and try to take control over it the best way you can. Find all the ways that help you do better. And finally, don't forget to live. Give yourself the means to achieve your dreams. One life is all we get. And it's up to us to make it as beautiful and meaningful as we can. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. And if you could take a few minutes of your precious time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to us. Also, don't hesitate to reach out if you have any question regarding what we just talked about. Take care, and we'll catch up soon for the next episode.